0: to 1st Timothy chapter 2 shall we the world today uh, has such an influence on the the church and you, you often people are are wondering well what what is the best kind of church to go to, there's so many denominations out there, so many different types, and some believe in tongues, and some are absolutely opposed to tongues, and some believe in prophecy, and others are anti-prophecy, and a person first getting saved has no idea what any of these things are. Where the Bible describes the church, it never describes the building, never. It describes the people, it describes their worship, it describes what they were taught, And any church that meets that criteria is a biblical New Testament church, regardless of what name hangs on the shingle outside. So what you most of all want is a biblical church. Having addressed the whole issue of of false teachers uh, that will come up through the ranks, down through the years in the church in chapter 1, in chapter 2, you could label this sermon How to Have Church Church. How to have church? What's a, what's a real church look like that has God's blessing on it? Uh, I love it. Paul is writing this personal letter to a, a young protege of his named Timothy. They are separated by 30 or 40 years in age, but the one is investing into the life of the other because he'll be taking over. He is the next generation. So it, I, I'd like to look at this in terms of discipleship. Paul discipling Timothy. Timothy then, while he is pastoring the church at Ephesus, then discipling his people. Discipleship in the Bible was never a 10-step program. It wasn't a book. It wasn't a magazine. It wasn't so many weeks of study of X, Y, or Z. It was walk with Jesus and walk with those that had walked with Jesus. That's what discipleship was. It wasn't a plan, it wasn't a program. It wasn't manufactured by by somebody or another. It was prompted by the Holy Spirit of God. It was enervated by the Holy Spirit of God. Taught by the Holy Spirit of God by godly men and women to one another. I would love to get back to that that model, these are personal letters, First and Second Timothy along with Titus uh, and Philemon are the, are the most personal letters of, of Paul's. Here he's addressing pastors in Timothy and Titus. Philemon's got another issue. We'll deal with that when we get there of what do you do with a runaway slave in first century Rome that said they should be, be put to death. But this is how to do church. Every one of us has come from a unique and wide, very, widely varied background. Where you came from. Some of you came from an extremely liturgical background. Some of you may come out of a cult. Some of you may come out of Protestantism or Catholicism of one kind or another. So, in a non denominational church like this, there is every manner of opinion how we should do church. As a non denominational church, we're free to look at Scripture and say, what does it say? So here are instructions on worship. You may agree with some of them. You may not agree with some of them. But what we must not do is allow culture to tell us how we should do church. If they have a concert going on in the pagan world and they have lasers and smoke pots and elevating platforms, uh, that doesn't mean the church has to have that. We're not in the entertainment business like the world is. We're in the business of edification. We're in the business, didn't Jesus say go into the whole world making disciples? He didn't say entertain them. And yet church today becomes an alternative form of entertainment. So easy sermons are passed out that don't offend anybody, don't challenge anybody, but also don't save anybody, don't edify anybody. You walk out and you get asked, well, how was church today? It was great. Oh, it was great. We had smoke pots and we had lasers we had fireworks going off and pastor rose out of the middle of the stage on an elevated platform with smoke clouds around him. And great. Were you built up in the spirit? What, what did the Word of God say to you? Well, he didn't even open the Word of God, but it sure looked magical. That's great. Go to Disneyland. You should go to church to be built up in the Lord, amen, to learn about His Word, to learn how to be a better Christian, not ape, society. We need to make that difference. That is why in this church, and and for me, I answer for no other man, I cannot, I cannot advertise the church. I will not prostitute the name of Jesus Christ out there or hope to out-preach somebody else. I don't want... There was a book a number of years ago called Marketing the Church. Really? Marketing the Church? If that doesn't strike you as carnal, you're in the wrong place. Spiritually as well as physically. Marketing the Church. And yet today there are so many churches... That see that as their primary mission. Ooh, I gotta get on TV. Ooh, I gotta get on radio. Oh, my social media presence. Me, 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 me. I'm building my kingdom. I'm leaving behind my legacy. How about we're in the flesh and not depending upon the Holy Spirit of God, using the ways of the world instead of scriptural outlines for us? How about we get back to the simplicity of church in the first century in Acts chapter. Uh, 40, chapter 2 and verses 42 and following, it says the early church, these 3,000 new believers that had responded uh, to Peter at his first public sermon, no notes, no preparation, no seminary, no Bible college, three-minute sermon, 3,000 people get saved. And it says they devoted themselves to four things, Four things that made the church strong back then that still make the church strong today. And all four are necessary. It's not that you get to do one or number one, number three, or I did two and four today. All four of these are like stools on a four-legged stool. If you chop out any one leg, the stool goes over. All four are important. The Apostles' Doctrine, that's been codified for us in the New Testament. It was a staple diet of the early church. It was one of the four major food groups, spiritually speaking, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. You should be in the Word of God regularly. They were, it says, every day they met together in the temple courts. In other words, they stood under the Word of God every single day. They went to church seven days a week and nobody burned out. That's a miracle all by itself. It's all you can do to get people to show up twice a week at church today. You're lucky to get people to show up Wednesday. They devoted themselves, the apostle's doctrine, to prayer. Uh, praying church is a strong church. Individually and praying corporately together. Every, every time we meet, there should be an emphasis upon that. They broke bread together. The Lord's Supper was what was in reference there. They broke bread. They had communion with each other. In this church, we do it uh, once a month. We remember, as Jesus commanded us to do, the sacrifice that he paid. And they fourthly devoted themselves to fellowship. In other words, they had large churches, the 3,000 gathered, and they met in each other's homes by night and broke bread with glad and sincere hearts. So personal fellowship. You should be investing in all four of those areas regularly. These are the four major food groups of the spiritual diet for the Christian, regardless of what church they go to or affiliation they came out of. These are four essentials. They're not negotiables. And yet today, there is a a work of Satan that is undermining the church, undermining the family, undermining the veracity of the Word of God. We live in times where these things that were precious to the church for 2,000 years are under attack they're under attack. When you turn on the TV, if you turn to any of the major networks, can I tell you they're not run by Christians and they're not in the business of edification? You see perversions of of marriage and sexual relationships played out on TV in such a disgusting manner. You just want to turn the TV off, and you should and read your Bible, and pray, and seek the Lord, and turn on some praise and worship music. I find sometimes the ads more disgusting than the program material. I mean, 30 years ago, some of the ads that they have on TV today that have called pornography. But the church today doesn't see it that way. And the church today thinks that's okay. Okay. That's the problem when we start acting like the world, looking like the world, dressing like the world, thinking this worldly stuff is what's the really important stuff. We've headed down a slippery slope and it is difficult to come back on. In the world, you find some despicable things that should have you uh, greatly concerned about the spiritual condition of our society. Been to Walmart lately. I pulled up. I mean, what me and Kathy saw at Walmart when we were shopping the other day, you, you, you're looking at your toes because you dare not look up because everybody's half naked. And, and, and society thinks that's fine. So everybody's wearing every manner of indecent clothing. And I thought, well, maybe that was just our unique experience uh, yesterday. So this morning, I, uh, I Googled, this will be fun, what people wear at Walmart, I got like 73 million hits right away. And I put it on images. People are going to Walmart in their underwear, in their pajamas, no undergarments at all, t shirts that leave nothing to the imagination. And you shake your head and you go, it's a wicked world. And it's infiltrated the church. It's infiltrated the church. Don't dress like that when you go to Walmart. Don't dress like that at church. So part of what he will address here in chapter 2 of 1 Timothy is how to do church. And there's a decent and proper way to do that without being a stick in the mud. It is culturally relevant, if you will, but most of all, it's pleasing to the Lord. This is how to do church the right way. It's less important what we do than that, that God tells us how he would have us to do it. Church is not you finding the thing that hits you the best, but finding the church that most is in line with God's word. It's really simple. Paul had written the church at Corinth and said that all things must be done decently in, and in order, 1 Corinthians fourteen forty. So there should be an element of, of decorum and decency and modesty in the church, and yet there is such a wide variety of freedom and expressions of worship. So these first seven verses here are really general instructions for the whole church, all people in all places at all times. They apply to everyone. And then he's going to get down onto some specifics here. He says in chapter 2 and verse 1, I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for everyone. For kings and for those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all, say all, all men to be saved. There are some brands of theology out there that say, no, God doesn't want all men to be saved. Some have been elected to go to heaven and some have been elected to go to hell. Well, the only problem with that theological teaching is it's unbiblical. God is not willing that any should perish, Peter tells us. Ezekiel says the same thing. God takes no delight in the death of the wicked. He wants all men to be saved. But back up to verse 1 for just a moment. Types of prayers. First of all, there should be requests. God, would you consider doing this for me? Would you work on this person's behalf? How about this job situation, Lord? How would you have me think or act about this situation? Well, what, what about this? Or what about... Ask of God. These are our requests. Lord, would you simply move on my behalf? Would you, would you heal this friend of mine? Would you touch my wife's knee? Would you heal the baby that is in need of that? Offering up those requests. Prayers often are filled with elements of worship worship. Prayer means literally to kiss towards. It's just telling God how much you love him, how grateful you are for his presence. Proskuneo means that you, you adore him and tell him that. Thank him for his love and, and, and love him in return. Offering up also as well intercessions. That's praying for other people interceding in prayer for them, people that are hurting, folks that are going through divorce or the people that lead our nation. Boy, do they need godly intervention there. And offer up as well, thanksgiving. Don't forget to tell God from time to time, thank you. We're not good at that. We tend to take it for granted, don't we? Oh, God, I prayed about this for so... And then he answers that prayer, but we forget to say thank you. We go... Well, I'm so glad that's past me. Did, but did you say, thank you, Lord, I got COVID, and I, I'm in the hospital, Lord, would you heal me? Then you get out of the hospital, and you go, sharp doctors, good therapeutics, maybe God? How about get, throw, throw God a bone and say, thank you, Lord, that he used physicians' medications or a sovereign touch from himself? Thanksgiving, and make these requests and prayers and intercessions. For everyone. In other words, you should have a pretty vital prayer life. When he says, first of all, that indicates priority. Prayer needs to be a, a priority. I would encourage you to set aside any amount of time a day, but make sure that it happens daily. Find a prayer closet somewhere at your house. There's got to be some room that you can get away from the kids, the husband, the wife, the dog, and just you and the Lord for just a, just a few minutes. Pray in that place. Didn't Jesus talk about the secret place of prayer? The closet that you close behind you where nobody sees except God? That God who sees what you're doing in private will reward you openly? Ah. Make time for that prayer. Otherwise, the problems of life will become an overwhelming burden to you. In prayer, you release them to God. All of your cares, all of your concerns, the people that you want saved, the the illnesses that you want to see God heal, the things that you want to see changed in your life, all of those you have to give to God, or you keep bearing that burden yourself. You're bearing a burden that Jesus said is not yours to bear. But you feel the weight. You feel the oppression. Oh, I'm so bummed out. Oh, I feel so hopeless. Oh, I'm so lost. I don't know what to do. What's the problem? Your eyes aren't on God, I'll tell you that. I don't know where your eyes are on, probably sin, self, or circumstance, but that's wrong. Don't do it. It is difficult for me to maintain compassion when I tell that to people, but they don't heed that. And they continue complaining and whining and feeling sorry for themselves, and they're a burden to everybody else because, oh, I'm so oppressed. I'm so overwhelmed. I'm so late. Give it to God. Jesus said, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Depression and sadness and overwhelming sorrow and feeling sorry for yourself. That's not what Jesus said he'd give you. So if you're feeling that, you're not doing what Jesus said to do. Just call it sin. I'm in disobedience. I need to repent. I need to change. Jesus said, come unto me, all you that are laboring and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me. Shackle yourself to me. Put yourself in that same yoke with me. He'll bear those burdens for us. They are not ours to bear. Pray for those in government. Paul had in verse 2, as we look at this, praying for kings and those in authority that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Have you noticed that government on all levels seems to be increasingly hostile towards Christianity and our values? Have you noticed that? They offer alternative gods. They offer uh, party platforms that are opposed to God's word. But they want to feed that to us as part of mainstream diet in in America. We should be praying for them. I I don't want to butt heads with anybody in positions of of power and authority. I want to live a peaceful, a quiet life. And I want to do it, verse 2, in all godliness and holiness. Godliness is when I'm godlike. Holiness is when I'm separated from the world. That's the root of the word, separation. I don't think like the world. I don't act like the world, I don't talk like the world, I don't lust like the world, I don't dress like the world, I don't smell like the world, I'm not obsessed with the things that the world is obsessed with. Why? I've been born again. It's easy. Paul says in the writing to the Romans, I died to that stuff. Can I tell you what? Corpses aren't attracted to much of anything. Corpses, I've died. died. I died with Christ. When I, when I identified myself with him uh, through the sinner's prayer and through baptism afterwards, I'll tell you what, you're a new creation in Christ Jesus. Behold, all things have passed away. All things have become new. I don't care about this stuff for the world anymore. God has given you everything you need for a life of godliness and contentment. That's what Peter says. Are you content? Are you content with what you have instead of what you don't have? just like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. God said, I give you 10 million trees to eat of. There's only one tree in the middle I don't want you to eat of, because the day you eat of that one, you're going to die. So, what's the one tree that they make a beeline to? Start talking to a serpent in the tree, and they see the fruit's good. Eve picks one, takes the chomp off the apple or whatever it was. I don't know what the fruit was, that's on the tree, I think it was a hot dog tree to tell you the truth, would have appealed to me greatly. Ten million trees, don't eat of one and that's the one they make a beeline for. God has given you ten million things, but we tend to complain about the one thing we don't have. The one thing I want most. God, you give me a house and children and cars, but what I really want is a brand new Mercedes Benz. Really? Can I do just a moment of spiritual diagnosis? You're carnal. Did that offend you? I hope so. I have to call a spade a spade. But we can't afford to think like the world. That worldly mindset has crept into the church today. And here's the biggest problem of all. We think it's okay. It's okay for me to lust after this person. It's okay for me to look at the naked people at Walmart. It's okay for me to look at just a little bit of pornography or listen to TV shows where they're cussing and their sex outside of marriage and all sorts of vile filth. It doesn't affect me. Your mind's a good computer. Garbage in, garbage out. You think on it and and expose yourself to it long enough, you're going to act just like it. And your values become as corrupt as the world's. That's Satan's strategy today. Don't buy into that. Understand that he is working a strategy. Live a, Strive to live a quiet, peaceful life in all godliness and holiness. Why? Because verse 3, this is good and pleases God our Savior. Paul said in writing uh, to the church at Rome in Romans 13, 1-7, he said, Let everyone be subject to governing authorities. Okay? For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against that authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment upon themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do what is right, but for those that do wrong. Do you want to be free from the one who is in authority? Then do what's right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant... For your good, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. You and I should speak well of police. We should thank God that we have police keeping our city as safe as it is. We should thank God for the authorities that he's raised up for us whether we agree with them politically or not. You know what really amazes me? Paul writes to the church at Rome. You know who's sitting on the throne of Rome? Caesar Nero, known as Nero the nutcase, the guy who was killing Christians, the guy who was feeding them the lions, the one who was persecuting the church. And Paul says, Submit to that Roman authority? Well, if Paul told Christians in the first century, submit to Rome's authority, you and I shouldn't have any problem submitting to anybody that sits in the White House or is in, in, in the House of Representatives or Senate. You want to pray for them. I'll tell you what. You want government to change? Pray. Pray. Write them a letter of encouragement. Just wanted you to know, President Biden, I was praying for you today. Just wanted you to know, Senator Bennett, that, that we were praying for you in our prayer circle at my house today. We just want God's best for you, looking that God would give you wisdom and gentleness. You know, Senator Hickenlooper, we just want God to cause His face to shine upon you today. Kamala Harris, we just want God to bless you today and steer every decision that you make. It's easy to criticize those that you don't agree with. It's more godly to pray for them. Pray for them. There'll be different prayer. I'll tell you what, if everybody in the Senate and Congress and in the White House, if every one of them was born again, saved, and spirit-filled, we'd be fine. We'd be just fine. Their greatest need is not a play, a change of political persuasion, but a change of heart. If their hearts are given to the Lord Jesus Christ, if their will is in alignment with the will of God, everything will be just fine. So I think there's room for improvement. There certainly is in my own life to Pray. For those that are in authority over us. I'm not scared of punishment. We're not lawbreakers. Although you're tested on it pretty regularly, aren't you? When your kid says, Dad, aren't you going a little fast? Oh, God didn't say I should obey that law. Really? Speeding is a sin. Don't do it. All it does is aggravate other people and create road rage, and you're not going to get there any quicker than me. We, we, me and Kathy were sitting at Palmer Park and Academy going to an appointment the, the other day, and as we're sitting in the line, there's about 10 cars in front of us. person right in back of us screeches around and dives into the parking lot and is going across the parking lot there at Palmer Park and Academy at 100 miles an hour trying to beat all the traffic. And so we waited our turn and went up there. And you, and the next light that we pulled up to on Lasalle and Academy, there uh, we look ahead, and there's the person who just did 60 mi- 100 miles an hour through the parking lot, sitting right next to us. And I thought, you broke every law. You could have gotten five tickets out of that, stupid. And you're sitting at the same light I am. Don't speed. Don't compromise. <sighs> Wear your seat belt. Otherwise, all of your children will remind you what a wretched pagan you are. Dad, you know the law says you're supposed to do your seatbelt. Mom, you know you're not supposed to speed. Dad, you know you're not supposed to cut people off like that. Road rage. How come you stuck up your middle finger, Dad? What's that mean? Yeah, your kids will convict you of, of all of your sins. And that's simply God saying, I want that to change. I want that to change. You're called by my name. Holiness and godliness and are not consistent with what you're doing. Don't do that anymore. This is practical Christianity. This is Christianity 101. Pray for those in government. We should pray for our leaders, whether we agree politically with them or not. And if Nero was on the throne, then, then we should acknowledge the authorities in the White House and in state, county, city, buildings of influence. Purpose of government isn't to tax the people. The real purpose of government is the preservation of the good. The preservation of the good. Keeping out corruption and evil when a government no longer fulfills that function. The evil they allow will ultimately destroy that government. It did Rome. Just study your history books. Someone defined prayer as God's way of enlisting you in what he's doing. That's a good way to look at prayer, isn't it? The goal to live a peaceful and godly life in all godliness, godlikeness, holiness, separated from the things of the world, that, that's what's being pointed out here. Uh, what's the source of godliness and holiness? It starts with, I believe, a deep reverential awe, honor, respect, and fear of the Lord. Boy, there's a lot of people that have forgotten this biblical concept of the fear of the Lord. It is reverential. It's reverential. It responds to his love by loving him back. In verse 4, he says, This is good, Please is God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. Notice that, one mediator. There are not many paths to God. The world wants you to think that, that all you've got to do to get heaven, to get to heaven is be good. Well, that's a pretty relative term, isn't it? What do they mean by good? What does the Bible mean by good? There's one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given at its proper time. Christ didn't die for just the elect. He died for all men so that all men might be saved. We know because we have been made in the image of God, you have a choice. Nobody's going to force you into the kingdom of heaven. But there is a choice to be made. Joshua would tell the people, choose you this day whom you will serve. God is God, serve him. If Satan is God, then serve him. But you better choose. And know this, that there are eternal consequences to which choice you make. God will honor whatever choice you make. You want to go to hell and serve Satan? God will let you do that. But don't blame him for the eternal consequences of 100,000 years from now. God wants you happy, contented. He wants to give you a great marriage. He wants to give you a a humble heart that is loving and kind and gentle. God's on your side. Why in the world would you fight him on that? Just do this in God's way, and it turns out a whole lot easier. Now, if you've got a better plan, I'd like to hear about it. You're serving Satan. You're serving the world. How's that working for you? You know what the world's divorce stats are? Do you know how many children are born out of wedlock in the world? You know how much sin and grossness and drugs and violence and homosexuality? The list goes on. You want that? God says, you can have that. But understand this, the wages of sin is death, eternal separation. from God. You don't want God in your life? You're on your own. That's fine. It's fine until the car you drive is crashing. On your deathbed, you're rethinking through. Man, I wished I would had gotten saved. Now is the day of salvation. That's what Scripture tells us. God wants all men to be saved. 2 Peter 3, 9 tells us God is not willing that any should perish. God would love to have all folks saved. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Submit your life to Jesus Christ and he can turn a life around. But since God created us in his own image with the capacity to make choices, not all will be saved. That's sad. That gives me no joy to say that. It's God's will that all be saved. But choice is only valid if it's honored. God told Adam and Eve what would happen if they screwed up. They chose to screw up. They reaped what they had sown. So the choices that we make for or against God, this side of glory, are very important, very important. The doctrine of election, he, he tests... Right here by saying he wants all men to be saved, but some hold to a doctrine of election that God does not want all to be saved. Well, that's simply not scriptural. It's said right here, we just read it, God wants all to be saved. Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. That's why Jesus came. He loves you. Saved or unsaved this morning. Understand this. God loves you. Isn't that the most amazing thing you've ever heard? Because you don't even love yourself sometimes. And there's times where nobody on this planet loves you. You're a Cretan. You know it. You've lied or stolen or cheated or steal or been selfish or a thousand other things. We know innately in our heart of hearts, I fall short the glory of God. What should I do? Come to Jesus, the one who loves you. He loves you so much. Just say, Jesus, would you be my Lord and God and Savior? I submit my life to you. Forgive me my sins. I believe you're the Son of God. Died on the cross for me. Rose from the dead on the third day. Be my Lord and Savior. You pray that prayer out of your heart of hearts this morning. You're saved. You confess with your mouth. Believe in your heart. You're saved. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God's not wanting that any should perish, but all come to repentance. The reason is prayer is acceptable to God because it's a prayer that is prayed according to His will, as 1 John 5, uh, 14 tells us. Verse 5, for there is one God, not many gods, just one. In the Old Testament, His name is given us, Yahweh, Yahweh. Because of the influence of the German language on our English language, you have perhaps heard His name pronounced Jehovah. Okay, that's fine. We understand the influence of the German language on American culture. In fact, we miss speaking German as our nation's language by one vote in the Continental Congress. Did you know that? One vote. You don't think one vote is important? It sure was then. We'd all be talking about eating schnitzel for dinner tonight. There is one God, one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. Boy, you just want to highlight verse 5. There's no other way to be saved. Well, I hope I'm good enough. Maybe I'm getting to heaven. Maybe if, I, if my good deeds outweigh my bads, all of that's baloney. We've all sinned and fallen short the glory of God. Jesus, verse 6, gave himself as a ransom for all men. If you could save yourself, Jesus would not have had to have given himself a ransom for all men. It's plain and simple. Logic is inescapable. Testimony given at its proper time. He says in verse 7 then, for this purpose I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying and a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles. I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. Stop right there for just a second. Verse 7 reminds me there are so many similarities between Jesus and Paul In preparation and in ministry, the similar preparation, they both had a sense of deep commission. They were well-trained by life. They were full of the Spirit of God. They each had the heart of a servant. Paul and Jesus have that in common. If you're walking with the Lord, you have that in common with Jesus as well. They had a similar ministry. Their message was simple, reconciliation with God. God loves you. Your sins stand in the way. Confess your sins, repent of them. He'll embrace you with open arms. It's all about Jesus. He's already paid the price your sins deserved. Their message was reconciliation. They both had a worldwide vision. They had a strategy. They focused on basic ministry. They trained up disciples to carry on the work after they were gone. They were men of, both men of perseverance. They were part of a team. They were men of compassion, men of passion. I love that. Paul says, I am telling the truth. I'm not lying in a teacher of the true faith. That implies that there are many false faiths. It's not faith that saves you. It's the object of your faith that saves you. There's probably Buddhists that have more faith than you. It doesn't mean they're going to heaven. The object of your faith is everything. It's Jesus He and he alone saves. No one else can. No one else will. And it's not the size of your faith that matters. Some, I have heard many people over the years go, oh, pastors, you might just, just, I just wish I had a bigger faith. Well, let's pray for it. But it's not the size of your faith that's relevant. It's the object of your faith. You may have a little faith, but you've got a great big God. And he's able to do abundantly more than you could ever think or imagine, Scripture says. Isn't that amazing? Oh, and on top of that all, he loves us. You know, he's not trying to work up warm fuzzies for you. It's not that he loves you less when you fall short. We tend to be conditional in our love, don't we? Oh, you treat me like a rat. Well, I'm not loving you anymore. And yet Jesus' love is without limits. He loves us. He does not love you more when you're good or worse when you're bad. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you and is willing to accept you just as you are. He loves you too much to leave you just as you are because you and him both know you're a hot mess. You need Jesus. You need Jesus pretty pretty regularly, don't we? Yeah, all the time. Job had agno- agonized. Looking at verse 5, I'm reminded of that passage out of... I love Job where he said in chapter 9, if only there were someone to arbitrate between me and God uh, so that this mediator could lay his hand on the both of us and I could make my appeal to God. If only I had a mediator. We have one. His name is Jesus. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. There's only one mediator not angels, not saints, not statues, not Mary, not the rosary. There is no other way to get to God. The Catholic Church can't save you. The Protestant Church can't save you. Only Jesus can save you because he's the only one that died for your sins. If you got Jesus, you got eternal life. If you, got, if you don't have Jesus, it doesn't matter what else you have. Well, I got church membership. I've been a lifelong card, carry, card carry and so so-and-so in this denomination. So what? I got baptized? Well, if you didn't believe in Jesus, you just got wet. Might as well have stood in the front lawn and get sprinkled on by your garden hose. Baptism identifies you with the life and death and burial and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, this is the truth that I've been telling all people. And he's very pointed. He says in verse 8, now here's a good place for church to begin. I want men. He doesn't say men and women. He says men. Now, if you're wondering why, it is because God means for men to occupy the place of spiritual headship in the church and in the home. It doesn't say that women can't pray. Of course, he wants women praying. But in this area of, of headship that was given to Adam, it's been passed down since. Here's the problem. Many men have abdicated the position of spiritual responsibility in the home. Well, honey, why don't you pray with the kids? Honey, why don't you have a quiet time? Honey, why don't you go to church? I'll stay home and watch baseball. God intended men to step up spiritually. I want men everywhere, verse 8, to lift up holy hands in prayer. It's the role of leadership that men are supposed to take. Taking the lead, the initiative in prayer. It doesn't mean that women can't pray. 1 Corinthians 11 uh, told uh, women were praying and prophesying in the church. doesn't mean women don't have a very important role. But men are expected to lead in this matter uh, of prayer. Now, you may look at verse 8 and go, you know, I'm not sure I'm charismatic enough to pull that one off. I came from a really conservative church, and when we are absolutely flaming in the spirit Pentecostal, we raise our hands to about here. That's our, that's our idea of raising hands. It's real conservative. and You know, that's fine. I don't care. When he said, he, he's not talking about the position of the body so much as the, the attitude of the heart. You know? You raise your hands this way. It's a, I've been asked some silly stuff. Well, Pastor Jim, when you raise your hands, do you turn them palms out or palms in? Who cares? Just raise your hands. I don't, I don't care. In elementary school, when you've got to go to the restroom, you raise your hands this way. Paul, I don't care how you raise your hands. Raise them both. Is that possible? Well, if you're right-handed, me, I want to just stick up your right hand. You want your left. Who cares? Raising up hands is a supplication to the Lord. Quite frankly, it's the picture of an empty vessel, isn't it? Fill me, Lord. That's what he's saying is open up your heart. Stop looking at people around you in church. Oh, so-and-so raising their hands. I don't know. Music's a little rowdy. Maybe I should be clapping, but I don't want to draw attention to myself. You know, close your eyes and you're singing and dancing and clapping to an audience of one. Stop looking at people around you. Who cares what they're doing? I want to be lost in the presence of the Lord. When I close my eyes, you disappear. You're gone. There's nothing I do in this church that is is to please anybody but the Lord. We have the mediator. Let's praise him. Let's worship him. I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. I also want, oh, without anger or disputing. Hmm. I know he's talking about men because men are far more prone to that than women. Road rage incidents are dominated by men acting like jerks. Not that women can't, but men tend to more regularly, to be sure. Without anger or disputing, we just can't bring that into the church. You know, it it divides. Satan knows united we stand, but divided we fall. Don't argue. Don't come to church and argue about anything. You find an argumentative person, you just want to walk away from that conversation. Then in verse 9, there's a very specific thing that he addresses here with women. So we understand men and women can pray and can worship, can prophesy. In the church, there is a place for for all of that. You know that in regard to the raising of hands, there's 41 biblical references to godly men and women raising their hands in, in worship? 41 times. You don't have to, but you have the freedom to be able to, and it's a very expressive way, the lifting up of the hands to the Lord. Uh, Psalm 141, verse 2, may my prayer be set before you, David writes, like incense, may the lifting of my hands be like the evening sacrifice. It's not the posture that's so important. I think there's so many positions of prayer found in Scripture, standing, kneeling, prostrating, bowing. Spurgeon put it well, that great 19th century English preacher uh, once said, I would rather teach one man to pray than ten men to preach. That's the priority that Charles had and Spurgeon had on prayer, rather teach one man to pray than ten men to preach. Now the following verses here are often belittled or mocked in our feminist society today, we're people that believe these passages that we're about to read in verse 9 are accused of being chauvinistic. Uh, by the way, can I can I just ask, don't use that word chauvinism unless you look it up and know what it means. It's a terrible term. Biblically, it's a terrible term. But if you just look it up in an unsaved dictionary, it's a rather deplorable word that, uh, it's really disgusting. Look up the root of that word chauvinism. Horrible, but we're called chauvinistic and outdated, Victorian and puritanical. But in Paul's day, what he writes here is radical. The average Jewish rabbi wouldn't even allow women in church, and if they did in the synagogue later on, the women sat over here, the men sat over there. Wow. Women had no rights in first century Rome at all. So he says in verse 9, I also want women to dress modestly with decency. Don't use Walmart uh, shoppers as your role model. With propriety. Propriety. What? Propriety. What's that mean? It means, is it appropriate for the occasion? If you're going out into public, put on clothes. That's appropriate for the occasion. If you come to church, dress modestly. I, we're a very informal church. I much don't care what, what you wear, but wear something, Please. Wear something. You want to wear flip-flops, great. Shorts, fine. T-shirts, fine. I don't care. Three-piece suit, that's great. Whatever you want to wear. But what's appropriate for the occasion? I don't want to be overdressed. I don't want to be underdressed. Uh, I don't want to dress in such a way as to ever call attention to myself. The only exception allowed biblically is Hawaiian shirts. You can wear Hawaiian shirts anytime you want to because I think they make a statement. They make a great statement. Quite frankly, that was considered the Calvary Chapel uniform for 40 years. Pastors had to wear those. I, I think that's great. So we're a chill church, and I think that's wonderful. Don't want that to change anytime soon. But dress modestly and decently, as verse 9 says, and women and with propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate, there's a key word, for women who profess to worship God. In other words, moderation. Nothing wrong with fixing your hair up and putting on jewelry if you want to wear it. That's fine. Moderation. It, just ask yourself, is it too much? Is it too little? Moderation always looks for the middle ground. It, this is certainly not a total ban on jewelry or braided hair. It's a, it's a caution against obsession. That's what it is. Don't be obsessed with this stuff. In the first century, women were taking literal, actual pearls and gold and sticking it in their hair and braiding their hair in, in such a way as to draw attention to themselves. Please, I'm asking you in Jesus' name, never dress in such a way as to draw attention to yourself. Only people that have a bad self-image do things like that. They go to Walmart because they, and they dress inappropriately because they have such a bad self-image. They want people to look at them. Don't. Do that. Your image comes from who you are in Jesus Christ, not in the designer clothes that you do or don't wear, or, or braided hair, or gold, or jewelry, or tattoos, or anything else. Those things are irrelevant. It is godliness and modesty that mean something in God's eyes. Those people are not your role models. So think that through. If you're tempted to dress in such a way to draw people's attention to yourself, Why am I tolerating that dysfunctionality? Do I have such a low opinion of myself that I need men to lust after me, so I'll dress in clingy clothes and not wear a bra? Don't do that. Don't do that. I don't want to be obsessed with anything that society is doing out there. It, It tends to make us prideful and arrogant these things people do to define their social status or importance, and Paul had already talked about that because there was such a fierce competition in Ephesus as women adorned themselves. The, the interesting Greek word "cosmeo," where we get the word cosmetics, means literally in the Greek to make order out of chaos. Think about that the next time you look in the mirror and you're putting on your makeup. I'm creating some order out of some chaos here. <laughs> Uh, I think God's got a sense of humor. <laughs> you know, nothing wrong with braided hair, nothing wrong with jewelry. They're not wrong in and of themselves, but become inappropriate when it indicates misplaced values. That's when it's wrong. When it's done to draw attention to yourself. That's that's when it becomes wrong and and in the Ephesian church that Timothy was pastoring at the time here, uh, some of those styles and things that were done that he's addressing right here were done in the local, by the local temple prostitutes. So if we can paraphrase, Paul, don't dress like a prostitute. Be careful. Be careful about letting pagan culture dictate fashion to us. Peter will put it this way in 1 Peter 3, starting in verse 1, wives in the same way, be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, oh, this is a this is a good one. Any wife that's married to an unbelieving husband, here's, here's a good piece of biblical advice. Wives in the same way, be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may, there's the possibility that they can be won over without words. By the behavior of their wives. That's a radical statement. You can't badger them into the kingdom of God. You can't argue into the kingdom of God. But if they see a godly woman in, in the home that is submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's borne out in her countenance, in the way she dresses, the way she prays, the way she reads... When they see the behavior of their wives, the purity and reverence of your lives, that has great impact on your husbands. So, ladies, if you're if you're thinking your husband's dogging it spiritually, set a good example in the home. Don't dog him. Well, I wish you'd read more. And the husband's thinking, I wish you'd nag less. (laughs) We can all read more. I wish you'd pray more. I wish you'd go to church with me more. Set the example. Ladies, set the example in the home, and that'll have a more profound influence on your husband than anything else. Peter continues, says, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair, the wearing of gold jewelry, fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. How you, how you dress reflects your heart and your values. Think about that. If a man dresses in a casual manner, it says something about him and his attitudes. Likewise, if a woman dresses in an immodest manner, it says something about her inner nature as well. Dress in such a way that dress is not an issue. <clears throat> Does it just make sense? Dress in such a way that dress is, is not an issue. Don't. Don't dress in such a way that someone else may be spiritually stumbled or compromised. Don't be the typical Walmart shopper. (laughs) Be different. Stand down. It's not a plea here for women to make themselves unattractive. It's simply an exhortation to reject the world's yardstick for measuring beauty and adopt heaven's standard instead. Now, I know that some will say in verses 11 to the end of the chapter, well, this was uh, specific to the historical Ephesians situation. Uh, No, this is, he's writing a general letter that was widely spread throughout all of the churches, and it maintains principles that are timeless and universal. Look at verse 11. A woman should learn in quietness and in full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. <sighs> take a deep breath. Every lady in the room, take a deep breath. <sighs> I am not going to be offended by God's word because feminist thing has been rammed down my throat since Gloria Steinem in 1970, who, by the way, is a pagan. Take a deep breath. It's okay. God loves you. I'm not here to step on any toes. I'm just here to tell you uh, what it says. It's a really dangerous portion. It's a dangerous place when you say, well, this Scripture doesn't apply to me. It just applied to the first century context. No, it applies in all women at all places at all times that are in the church. Don't become a judge as to what parts of Scripture I'm going to listen to and what parts I'm not. We're not the judge of such things Women should learn in quietness and in full submission, verse 11. doesn't mean that they can't speak. In in 1 Corinthians 11, women were speaking, women were talking, women were prophesying, women were praying. That's not what it says. It says that women shouldn't take the dominant role to feed the men in the church spiritually. That role, and he's going to outline that next week's study in chapter 3. Overseers and deacons are both masculine women words in the Greek language. They are not feminine. They are not neuter. So the pastoral office and that of deacons seems to be biblically relegated to the men in the church that are supposed to be exercising spiritual headship. As they do at home, they should be at church. I love it when men are dominant in Sunday school as the teachers back there. That's a wonderful thing, but in a lot of churches, 90% of the people you find teaching in Sunday school are are women, not men. And you're going, men, why have you abdicated spiritual authority? Get back there and teach those kids. Love on them. Tell them about Jesus. This doesn't mean that women can't have, they can't teach. Timothy was taught by his mother, his grandmother. In fact, in writing to Titus, Titus says, Uh, Paul tells him the older women should teach the younger women in the church. So there's obviously a huge role for women in the church. Doesn't mean that they can't have significant places of ministry. You'll remember in Acts 21, Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven early deacons, had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Women, however, seem to be exempted from the pastoral role. All he's saying is that women should stop trying to usurp the role that God established in men in the church, and it's a timeless principle. And just because there's a vacuum, because men have abdicated the positions of spiritual leadership, doesn't mean that women should become the dictators at home or in the church. There's balance in these things. Do you see what I'm saying? It's all about Jesus. The men should be setting a godly and gentle and kind example spiritually in the home. Men, you should be reading the Word. Men, you should be praying with the kids. Men, you should be encouraging the wives. If they're doing the cooking, be sure you're the one taking out the trash and doing the dishes. For some of you, that's a real revelation. But I can tell you when I just said that, every woman of the room went, yes. Yes. <laughs> So guys, you're not to be dictators in the home. You're to set the spiritual example. Start there and everything else will turn out a whole lot better. I promise you that. When it says there in, in verse 11, woman should learn in quietness, that Greek word is very interesting. It doesn't mean that they have to be silent. It doesn't indicate a complete silence or no talking aloud at all. In fact, elsewhere, uh, it's used to mean that the, they're settled down. They're undisturbed. They're not ruly There's a different Greek word, segaio, which means to be silent, to be mute and say nothing. That's not the word that Paul uses here. Women can speak up in the church. They can ask questions. They can do all manner of of ministry in and through uh, the local assembly. But teaching from the pulpit doesn't mean women can't share. There's no sin in having women share announcements or what God's doing or share their testimony or a thousand other things. I have no problem with that. I'm not sexist at all. I am a biblicist, so a woman uh, is not to have authority over man, spiritual authority. She must must be silent. Like I said, the overseers and deacons outlined in chapter three fall next, and the terms are exclusively male. You say, well, Pastor Jim, how do you deal with female pastors? I don't deal with them at all. It's unbiblical. But the fact of the matter is there's lots of women pastors. It doesn't mean that men are better than women or women are better than men. That's that's wrong to look at it that way. What does the Bible say? What does God say? He created man. He created woman. He gave that man spiritual headship. He weenied out in the garden while he watches his wife talk to a serpent. He forbidden fruit. And he doesn't say nothing. So men have been abdicating that spiritual responsibility ever since. It is our nature as men to be spiritually lazy. I can tell every husband in this room, your wife resents that. Change. What a revelation. Start reading your Bible. Start praying with your family. Start setting the example. That's what Paul is talking about here because we live in a day and age where men are giving up and her women are going, Man, I hate taking on this role, but you've given me no choice. Nature abhors a vacuum, and so do wives in the home. They want their husbands to lead spiritually, they want their husbands to be godly men, Bible readers, men of prayer. Men that express the fruit of God's Holy Spirit. That's what all wives want. Verse 13, and he explains here why it was set up this way, and it is a timeless principle. For Adam was formed first. That's what makes it a timeless principle. Paul goes, by way of analogy, all the way back to the Garden of Eden when man first messed up. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. And you're saying, well, wait a minute. I remember reading that when Adam ate of the forbidden fruit, it was given to him by his wife. In other words, he was right there listening to her talk with the serpent, Satan, plucking the fruit off. Why didn't he say something like, what are you doing talking to snakes? What are you doing anywhere near the only tree of these millions of trees that's been forbidden? What are you doing here, sweetheart? Give me your hand, let's go. He said, What? Nothing. Urgh. There's a part of me as the pastor just wants to slap that boy. Adam was formed first, then if you look at verse 14 carefully, Adam was not deceived. He knew exactly what he was doing. I choose the woman over God. She just sinned and fell, I am too. It was a volitional choice of his. He could have stopped the dialogue and didn't. He could have stopped her from eating the fruit and didn't. When she handed him the forbidden fruit, he could have said, no, I will not. Fallen on his knees, repented, and asked God for mercy. My Genesis might have turned out completely different. But Adam wasn't deceived. He knew exactly what he was doing. If this woman is going to die, then so am I, because I choose her over God. It was the woman who was deceived. In other words, Adam has less of an excuse than she does. She was deceived. I think we've all been deceived at one point in time or another, haven't we? She was deceived in the garden. She became a sinner. His sin was worse because he knew exactly what he was doing. Wow. Men are rational and objective, not emotional. He knew exactly what he was doing and chose. But then he says something interesting here in verse 15 that is going to cause a lot of people to scratch their head. But women will be saved through childbearing if, circle that word if, they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Okay, let's take this apart because you're scratching your head already going, I have no idea uh, what this is about. Let me give you the the Greek of, of verse 15. But she, doesn't say women, but she will be saved through the childbearing. Anytime the definite article the is used, it points to a singular and specific and unique identity. Let's take this apart. When you say, but she in verse 15, who is the nearest feminine antecedent? Eve. She, Eve, will be saved, future tense, through childbearing. Remember that God had told her you'll have children. He'd given them the command to multiply and fill the earth. But after the sin, childbirth was difficult, and it's been that way ever since. Oh, She will be saved through childbirth, childbearing, if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. But the literal Greek says she will be saved through the childbearing. It brings to mind back in Genesis uh, 3.15 where God said someday the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Satan would, would injure his heel, but, but Jesus would crush the head of the serpent. Maybe the childbearing is a reference to the fact that Jesus would someday come as prince, as king, as Messiah. She would be saved. All of us have been saved through that childbearing. The the gist of the original language, and it's a bit cumbersome, I get this out of the Greek. Women will be kept safe through the childbearing process if they continue to abide in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Remember what Jesus said about abiding in Him, and you'll bear much fruit in John 15? Well that that same principle of, of abiding is here. If they continue, that's the word abiding that's in the Greek there in verse 15. So ladies, continue pursuing faith and love and holiness and propriety, proper conduct, actions, dress and speech. Dress appropriately, dress modestly. Now why would why would Paul have to say that in in this context. Well, notice today what Satan is attacking. The family is under attack. You're seen as weird if you have more than two kids, three at the outside. If you have eight, you must be the spawn of the demons. Big families are really looked down today. Satan is attacking the family. He's attacking God-given gender assignments, what a world we live in today. Well, choose your bathroom. I am scared to death of those bathrooms that have a picture of a guy and a gal and something else beside it. I don't know if it's safe to go in there or not. So I hold it. I go, I go I'm not going in that bathroom. No, tell them what you're going to find. So I want one that's got a man figure on it, and I assume that's the man's bathroom. I'll go into that one. But this cross-gender nonsense, Ooh. If you don't know what your gender is, have your general family practitioner draw a little blood, spin down a little DNA, and tell you, guy or girl, okay? Genetically, who you are has already been determined from before you were born by God. You don't have to come out of the wonder, am I a girl or a boy today? What? Look in the mirror. What were you born as? That's what God gave you. That's your God-given gender assignment. But today the government is promoting promoting all transgenderism, promoting homosexuality. You mean like the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah that were destroyed in Genesis 19 for that sin? But today, the Christian community, by and large, the majority of the Christian community feels that dedicated homosexual relationships are okay. No, it's not. It's the only sin in the Bible that's called an abomination. You cannot start thinking that it's okay because the world says it's okay. We are in the world but not of the world. What should we do with the homosexual and transgender community? Love them. They need Jesus. Share Jesus with them. We don't treat them as pariahs. We don't make fun of them. We don't point fingers. They need the Lord. Their conduct tells you that. The world is advocating abortion today, and if you don't see abortion the way the world does, they're going to burn your house down. They're going to paint your church. They're going to picket your house if you're a Supreme Court justice. In this age of uber-feminism, biblical mandates like the one we just read are thrown out the door. Okay, then choose you this day whom you're going to serve. We live in an age of gender-confusing, weird, elective, personal pronouns. Well, what are your preferred pronouns? Just call me Jim and you don't have to worry about using pronouns at all. But there's, oh, my preferred pronouns, your preferred pronouns. You don't have the right to mutate the English language. If you're a guy, it's he. If you're a gal, it's she. Deal with it. There shouldn't be any confusion about it. Reversals of roles in marriage today that are modeled on TV and the door stats, children born out of wedlock. The family is under attack. So we either do this God's way or we perish. I know I, if you have too much worldly thinking in you, I just stepped on your toes and forgive me because that was not my intention today. Don't shoot the messenger. I didn't write the book, but I am here to tell you in unabashed terms exactly how God feels about these issues. Whether you do or not, it's between you and God. As for me, I must follow the Word of God, and I have to teach it and preach it uncompromisingly. I think there are many facets to verse 15 as we wrap up. I think there are many applications of this beyond a reference to the Old Testament promises that were given to Adam and Eve, I think that it is indeed a truth because there was such fear of having children in the first century. Half of the kids died in childbirth. So it was generally happy that she was pregnant but paralyzed with fear that she or the child may perish. So women will be preserved physically through the difficult and dangerous process of childbirth. I think that's wrapped up in verse 15 as well. That women will be preserved from insignificance by her role in the family. Boy, I, don't, I think the calling of a mother is amazing. Certainly she... Eve will be saved through the birth of Jesus Christ, the Savior. It's an indirect reference to Genesis 3.15. But I think also there's a fourth application that women will be kept from the corruption of society when they are at home raising children. They're kept free from the corrupting influences of that wicked society. doesn't mean that women can't work. That's not what it says. But when we're fulfilling our, our biblical roles and God is providing, oh, it, it's a wonderful thing. There are choices that you have to make in this life. When Kathy and I uh, left everything that we had sold, all that we had, and go, went out to California back in 84, I believe it was, uh, to go to seminary where the Lord had called me to, we gave up everything. Sold everything that we had to go out there, and I had just enough money to pay for one semester of seminary and trusted God for the rest of this. It was a, a very difficult thing. But God had laid on my heart, you know, Jim, lovest thou me more than these? No, Lord, I love you more than anything. I'll sell it all. I'll give it away. I don't care uh, to follow you. Because I knew what the Lord was calling us to was an uncompromised life. Are you sold out, Jim? It's not just pastors that are supposed to be sold out. It's supposed to be everyone that calls in the, upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you sold out to him or are we sold out to society? Are we sold out to his way of thinking? Or have we allowed society to tell us how we should think about these issues that are relevant today? Make up your mind today. I will do this God's way. I will do this God's way. You don't have to understand everything. You just have to seek the Lord. He'll give clarity on a wide variety of these issues that society faces today. But this I know. It starts with you and I choosing this day whom we will serve. Is God God? Then serve him. If Satan is God, serve him. And then tell me how well that works. Let's stand together and close in prayer, shall we? Lord of heaven and earth, you're the one we need. You're the answer to all of society's ills today. People have thrust you behind their back. Whole societies and countries have. We'd ask, Heavenly Father, please bring us back to yourself as a nation, as a state, as a, as a people. Bring us back home and show us, Lord, with you there, there's no gender confusion. With you there's no multiplicity of personal pronouns. You are God. And you got this. Your word is what will stand firm into all of eternity. It's not the morals of society dictated to us that we cave into today. We will think like you think, Lord. We ask that you transform our heads and our hearts and our minds. You have the last word, and we declare that this morning. You and you alone have the last word, not TV, not society, not social media. There is so much noise out there, Lord, we sometimes get confused. But remind us, you have the last word in all things. You are the Lord. You are God Almighty.